Hi, this is Dan Ariely. If you want to press 1, press 1. If you want to press 2, press 2. If you want to press 3, press 3. That's Professor Dan Ariely of Duke University, one of the world's leading researchers on the subject of cheating. Look, in my experiments, I tempt people to steal money from me, and I see that most people steal money. Right now, with a wave of stories about individuals or institutions giving in to their own temptations, from deflated footballs to inflated war stories. What's also interesting about his particular story is that we know that once people start telling particular stories, their stories can become part of their remembered reality. Dan Ariely can address what many of us are wondering. Are people who behave honestly at a competitive disadvantage? My journey from evil to heroism started in the South Bronx when I was a little kid, surrounded by people, men, whose job it is to corrupt kids. At the age of 81, psychology professor Philip Zimbardo is one of the giants in the field of what leads some people to do the wrong thing and others to do the right thing. My 1971 Stanford prison experiment, what happens when you put really good people in a really bad place, a simulated prison, randomly assign them to play role of prisons and guards? The study was supposed to go two weeks, and we had to end it in six days because it was out of control. Now, more than 40 years after his famous Stanford prison experiment, Philip Zimbardo is on a new mission. The Heroic Imagination Project. And our mission is to create everyday heroes. The heroic imagination readies you to say, somebody should do something. If nobody's doing it, it might as well be me. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. This latest wave of stories about cheating, lying, cutting corners, from deflated footballs to artificial crowd noise being pumped into a football stadium to Brian Williams saying his helicopter was hit in Iraq when it wasn't, it does make you wonder about the prevalence of dishonesty. And some of these stories led my young teenage son, who is passionate about fair play, to wonder, does everyone out there cheat? as he put it, in their own special way. Can you be honest? Can you follow the rules and still win? I've been reaching out to the very best people equipped to address the heart of my son's question, a question many of us have. Does honesty pay? We'll start with Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, Professor Dan Ariely. Hello, hello. Hello, Professor Ariely. Michael Shoulder at Wavemaker Conversations. How are you? I am great. Well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm already laughing because, of course, we got the uh, uh, voice, uh, the answering machine on your phone. Uh, people sometimes tell me what they press, but I'm not able to track down the logic of uh, what type of people press what. Well, I, I didn't press anything because I had I had faith that you would steer me in the right direction. So that's what I'm hoping for. And this <laughs> this shows really from my son and my children and our children because we are in the middle of one of these waves of, of, of stories, a series of stories about people who have cut corners, broken the rules, cheated, and got ahead for a long time doing it. And there was the ball deflation scandal. Uh, there was the, uh, the story we heard about pumping artificial crowd noise into the Atlanta Falcon Stadium. Uh, those are two, two from the sports world. And, you know, my son, who, who really believes in fair play and wants to live in a world where there is fair play and you get ahead by following the rules, he was asking me the other day, he said, it seems like so many people are cheating. Does honesty pay in practical terms? 
So lots of lots of uh, interesting nuances in this in this question. So first of all, I think we need to understand that honesty in society is a public good, right? It basically means that we can trust each other, and it's important for the progress of society. So imagine what it would be like to live in a place where you thought that nobody respected their their word and that the handshake was not worth anything. Uh, what would happen under those conditions? Basically, you wouldn't trust anybody. You would not uh, allow your neighbors, you would not ask your neighbors to bring in your mail. And you, you, know, you might not even uh, trust your kids to do, to do something. And everything would have to have lots of lawyers and everything would, you know, you would not trust the bank. And, you know, life would be terrible. So, so trust in society is an incredibly important lubricant. Um, for example, I met somebody um, from Iran told me that in Iran, people, people just don't trust their employees. So what they do is they often hire people from the family. Now, he said those people might not be good uh, hire for that particular job, but at least they can trust them. But it's incredibly inefficient because of that. So I think that we need to understand that trust is an incredibly uh, important resource. So we know that then from what you're saying, and when we feel it, that, that trust is a societal good, Based on your research and what you've been immersed in, do you think we have, generally speaking, reason to trust? Yeah, so I think, I think that most people are good. So, look, in my experiments, I tempt people to steal money from me, and I see that most people steal money. Okay, so from that perspective, you could say, oh, people are terrible. But at the same time, I see that people don't steal a lot. So let me describe to you how we do these experiments. So imagine I gave you a six-sided die. And I said, look, I'll roll the die and I'll pay you based on what it comes up on. You roll six, I'll give you six dollars, five, five, three, three, two, two, and so on. Uh, but you can decide whether you're going to get paid based on the top side or the bottom side. Top or bottom, you decide, but don't tell me. So I said, okay, please decide, keep it in your mind, and now roll the die. And let's say you rolled it and it came up with five on the bottom and two on the top. And I said, what did you decide, top or bottom? Now, if you decided bottom, you say bottom and you get $5. But if you decided top, now there's a question. Do you say top and get $2 or do you lie? Do you say bottom and get $5? And we get people to do this 20 times. And in 20 times, we can pretty much figure out if people are lying or not. And, and what we find is that lots of people cheat a little bit, almost Everybody uh, cheats a little bit. So that's the bad news. The good news is that people don't cheat all the way. People cheat just a little bit and just to the extent that they can rationalize it. So now the question is what causes people to be able to rationalize it? So, for example, if instead of getting money, they get tokens that can later be translated into money, people cheat more. If we get them to work with somebody else that they like and the money is divided between them, they cheat more. If they get the money uh, for them and their family or if they get it to a charity, people cheat, cheat more. So what happens is that it's really about our ability to rationalize our behavior and at the same time think that we are, we are good people. So what happens is that you can rationalize a little bit of behavior, a little bit of bad behavior, and still think you're a good person. You can't rationalize a lot of it. So people cheat, but they don't cheat a lot. And, and let's just take, for example, uh, Brian Williams. So you just mentioned him, the news reporter that you know uh, made up made up a story about being hit 
that his helicopter was hit. Now, you know, there are lots of elements of that story that really happened. So he was really there. He was in a helicopter. He got there half an hour later, right? But so he kind of embellished, but he didn't make up things from scratch. What's also interesting about his particular story is that we know that once people start telling uh, particular stories, their stories can become part of their remembered reality. When I read your bio, one of the things you address in your work is, why do we so often fail to act in our own best interest? This was clearly, you know, the moral imperative aside, it was clearly not in his best interest to tell that story. Yeah. And, and you know, it's not, it's not unique to these cheating stories. So, for example, I've talked to all kinds of people who cook the books for, for different companies. And it's really the case that it was for their benefit. So here is a CFO, and they are a little bit behind Wall Street expectations. Um, they want the company to do well. They think the company is doing well. They just miss Wall Street expectations a little bit. And that CFO wants to help the company. So they, they fudge the numbers a little bit. Of course, next quarter they have to fudge it more. But they start not from a selfish perspective. They start by wanting to help their comrades. And, and I think that if you know, the, the person I'm thinking about, you know, ended up being spending a big jail sentence um, for that. And, and I think Brian Williams is, is similar, that his initial intention was to get people to think about the, the, the intensity and terror of the war in a more concrete way. And he took a tremendous personal risk for doing this, but his motivation was not, not selfish. I think it was not it was not selfish. And so, so lying, you know, we think about people who are lying and cheating as if they are psychopaths who are just trying to maximize their benefit and don't care for other people. We don't find that to be the case. In fact, in many cases, they, they are doing it. The, the first step is out of feeling of fairness and compassion and caring for others and so on. But now, so what I'm hearing, though, and I don't know if there's a little bit of a dichotomy here, is, you know, um, as with your, your dice experiment, you know, people would lie a little bit, but I also hear a slippery slope happening, that people sometimes start with small lies, and then, and then they grow bigger and bigger, and, and it leads down a slippery slope. So what, is, is, is that what tends to happen? And, and the slippery slope has multiple, multiple causes to it. So uh, one thing is when there's a specific lie, like here's what happened to my helicopter, uh, that lie can become cemented uh, to some degree over time. So, for example, we've looked at people who lie on their resumes, and you, you exaggerate something on your resume. You know, you went to a, a weekend class at Stanford, and you write that you took a weekend class, and you say, well, people don't understand weekend class. Let me just write class. Then you say, well, it was really taught by the same people who do the MBA class, so let me, um, so for people to understand it better, let me write it's an MBA uh, class. And basically, over time, it kind of changes, but also when you see your resume every time, it kind of reminds you that you really got this credential, and self-deception kicks in, and you start, you start thinking that that's really what happens. And you can imagine that in those cases, if we said, hey, did you really do this, you would say no. But if you told the story with the lie detector, the lie detector would not detect what is going on. So think about Brian Williams. He started telling the story in 2003. 
if we asked him a year ago if we connected him to a lie detector for the whole day without him you know paying particular attention to it and including in that day he told that story my guess is that the lie detector would not detect a lie that but that time it was so integrated into his um kind of pretend you know imagine experience of the of, of that it would not create these um emotional um conflict that's what causes um lie detectors to to bounce off I, mean, I was just going to say that leads to the question that you raised earlier it's you know that telling the truth is a societal good you have to trust people and yet some of these examples you gave me of these little incremental lies that grow and grow and grow all the way to I took the MBA class leads me to believe that boy I'm not sure I know who to trust and my gosh I mean you're at a university you know at Duke uh, my gosh how do I trust the, uh, the 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 resumes I see and the records of the students who are applying to the school when I know people will do this and not even get what you call that sort of emotional conflict that would show up in a lie detector test. So how is lying a bigger problem than we think? I think I think it certainly is, and I think it certainly is a bigger deal in modern society than uh, than it has been. And the reason there are two basic reasons for it. It's not that people have changed, right? It's not as if the, the hardware of, of human nature has changed. But two things are different. One is that we are dealing with a society that works more over great distances without individual connection. So I'll describe to you one experiment we did is kind of the simple version of it is I put six packs of Cokes in common refrigerators in the dorms of the students. And I basically come and check how my cokes are doing, and you know, very quickly all the cokes disappear. Right? We call it the half lifetime of coke, and people basically, you know, just steal steal these kind of cokes. In another version of the experiment, we put six one dollar bills on a plate in the refrigerator. Now the students can take a dollar bill, they can go to a vending machine, they can get coke and change. Nobody ever takes that. Right? And, and the reason is that a Coke can give you a story of why this is actually okay, where stealing money is very clear. This is why people feel okay about taking office supplies from home, but taking a dollar from a petty cash box seems, seems immoral. So as a society, we're moving into this direction. So think about something like illegal downloads. And when I ask my students, most of them have illegal downloads on their computers, and they don't feel bad about it. And they're basically stealing from people they admire, right? They take musicians that they love their work and filmmakers, they love their films, and they're stealing from them. And these students would not take a dollar if, if one of those movie stars or, um, you know, um, musicians would walk next to them and they dropped a dollar from their pocket. They would probably pick it up and run after them and say, here, uh, take it back. Um, even if they dropped $100, $1,000, they would probably want it back. But... What happens is that it doesn't feel as direct to download things online. You don't really see the person that you're hurting. And in society, we're going into this direction. Uh, we deal with people over great distances. We do lots of intermediaries. Things are much more abstract. That's the first thing. And the second thing is a social contagion. So what happens is that we get a sense of what's right and what's wrong from people, from people around us. And I think that uh, in the case of dishonesty, as we see more and more people behaving badly around us, and, and to date we know more about it than we knew 50 years ago, it becomes uh, contagious. So, for example, in one experiment uh, we did, 
uh, we got students to be in a big room, and we basically um, took one student that worked for us. He was an acting student, and we asked him to cheat in an egregious way. And what we saw is that once these students cheated, everybody else uh, started cheating as well. They saw somebody cheating and said, hey, this must be the way you behave here. And then they kept on uh, behaving behaving this way. So so I think both of those things are, are happening in, in modern society, and both of them are quite quite frightening. It's the fact that we are just don't see the consequences of our actions in the same way, and being dishonest seems more appropriate. And, and this is what corruption is all about, right? Corruption is all about cases in which we know something is illegal, but we don't care. We don't think that's something so, wrong. So here's, here's, here's what, what, uh, an example of the social contagion effect that I was just talking to somebody about, a father on one of my children's baseball teams who had played college baseball in the 1990s when steroids was very popular. And he told me the pressures to take steroids was enormous. And I didn't even realize the medical impact until the other day that not only do steroids build muscle, but they help your muscles recover more quickly. So he was saying you would see these, you know, both college and uh, major league baseball players playing as fresh in August as they were at the beginning of the season. And for other honest players who didn't want to take those performance enhancing drugs, that, you know, that that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and and I've talked I've talked to to all kinds of athletes, uh, including lots of cyclists. And, and that's exactly the situation, which is they look around and everybody around them seems to be uh, taking these performance-enhancing drugs. And they know it's illegal, but if you think about what's driving our behavior, it's not really what's legal and not. It's what we feel comfortable with. And what we feel comfortable is a function of what's in the environment around us and how other people uh, are behaving. The question is, is, is the, the heightened sense of competition for limited resources, for limited spots in college, for limited spots in great jobs, is that, based on any studies you've done, pushing people to cut corners and cut the rules? And it, absolutely, it absolutely is, and especially in two cases. If you think that somebody else is doing it, and if the rules for ethical behavior are somewhat blurred. So, so, so imagine, you know, we usually think of competition as just getting the best out of people. But in fact, that's not true in all situations where competition is for a scarce resource. So imagine I have about 300 students in my class. Imagine I created one situation with no competition and I say, you know, everybody could get an A. It's just a question of, you know, how, how hard you work, and it's just between you and yourself. Situation number two, I said, I'm going to give only one A in the class, right? In what, in what world would this create a better world? Uh, not at all. What would happen is people would compete. They would do all kinds of things that are unfair because of this notion of the, the winner takes, takes all. And if one person behaves badly, uh, this will be kind of like the doping in sports, Everybody will have the incentive to try and level up uh, the playing field. You remember when Lance Armstrong talked to Oprah Winfrey and she asked him if he felt he was cheating. And he said he didn't feel like he was cheating. He was feeling like he was doing what everybody else was doing. He said cheating is getting ahead unfairly. He was just leveling uh, the playing field. 
I, I guess we're we're all creating the rules right now as we speak. And and we need and we need to be explicit about them, and we need to realize that they are tough you know, for people to figure out and then tough to follow. And we need to create uh, as much help along the way as possible. So, for example, I try to help my students very much create very specific rules for what is expected, accepted, and unexpected. Final question for you, because I was reading a little bit about your life story, and you really had a, a pivotal moment in your life, which was almost painful to read, but but you turned it into something very positive and good, and I'd love you to share that with us. So so this was not the moment. It was <laughs> many years. So I was, um, I was burned when I was uh, 18 uh, very badly. I was burned in about 70% of my body, and I spent about three years in hospital. You know what the magnesium flare is? It's a big uh, bomb that the military sends out of the sky to light up a battlefield. And one of those got exploded next to me on the ground. Uh, so there was nothing heroic about it. It was just an accident. <clears throat> and, and, uh, but it was very, very intense uh, flames, that, and I got burned very, very badly. And, and, you know, life in hospital has lots of terrible things with it. There is uh, helplessness, and there is... Uh, pain and there's uh, painkillers and there's uh, uh, treating from other people and fear and I really started thinking about what what can I do to improve things and my my first thought was to try and go and be a physician because I thought I could do a better job than some of my physicians but because my hands were burned so badly I can't really hold a scalpel and I'm not sure I can even uh, do a physical check for people so they wouldn't take me into medical school. Uh, but interestingly, I, I found my path through social science. So basically in social science, what I try to do is I try to figure out what mistakes people people make, and often in hospitals, and then try to think about how do we, how do we fix it. So for example, um, now recently we've been, we have a project in which we follow physicians as they give really bad news to patients, mostly about cancer and end of life. And we try to understand how should you deliver, what, what mistakes they're making, how should you deliver these, these news, what are the right ways, what are the wrong ways, how can we give people advice, physicians advice about how to do it in a way that gets people to make better decisions. So basically my career is all about, my career, my, my uh, you know, uh, profession is all about trying to identify where we go wrong, what mistakes we make that don't maximize our human potential, and what can we improve? Just tell me about the role of humor in creating really this better society that you're looking to create. So I think the, the, the question really is, is about resilience. And resilience, you know, we don't know much about resilience. But I think uh, to some degree resilience is uh, the ability to reinterpret uh, some terrible experiences in a way that has a positive element to that. And, and most humor is like that, right? Most humor takes a, a situation that is kind of sad, but looks at the bright side of it. And I think more generally, it's about taking something that is a very difficult uh, point in time, a very painful, difficult experience, and trying to figure out what's the, what's the positive side of it. What have we learned? What can we learn? What, how can we move forward? And what what motivates me is that the, the, the bad said lessons, um, I have a, a better insights about them, and therefore I might be able to try and 
move something forward from that perspective. Well, thank you so much. I hope you had fun with this, and uh, uh, thanks for joining Wavemaker Conversations. Very much, and thanks a lot. So what do we do with Professor Dan Ariely's research on that important line between honesty and dishonesty? Is there action we ourselves and our communities can take to increase trust, which Ariely calls the lubricant to a well-functioning society? In a moment, some answers from the psychology professor who designed the famous Stanford prison experiment and his journey from evil to heroism. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. This episode, Does Honesty Pay? An episode really triggered by the latest wave of stories about cheating and lying, which has led many of us to ask whether playing fair puts us at a competitive disadvantage. Joining to help us answer that question, one of the giants in the field of social psychology, a man on a mission at the age of 81, Philip Zimbardo. Hello, Philip Zimbardo. Hi, Professor Zimbardo. This is Michael Shoulder, Wavemaker Conversations. Tell us a little bit about your journey, and please answer my son's question. He wants honesty around him. He wants to know, does it pay to be honest? Yeah, so let me begin there. Um, uh, hi, I'm Phil Zimbardo. I'm a professor emeritus at Stanford University. And about seven years ago, uh, I gave a talk at the TED conference uh, in Long Beach, uh, and it was a brief talk uh, on my journey from from evil to heroism, and it not only got a standing ovation, but it went viral. Many of the people in the audience came up and said, hey, you know, nobody's talked about the hero part of this. You know, we'd like to give you money to start a nonprofit foundation, which I did. So I started a nonprofit foundation in California, 501c3, called the Heroic Imagination Project. And our mission, in one way, is simple. In one way, it's grandiose. It's to create everyday heroes, it's especially among young people, to teach them uh, through understanding basic principles of psychology, mostly social psychology, how to stand up, how to speak out, and how to be a wise, take wise and effective action against injustice, against um, for moral causes, and also to combat the rampant apathy, the rampant bystander effect, which is, is, seems to be increasing in our country. Uh, so, so we've developed um, over these years, uh, we focus mostly on high school and college kids, and we hope we get funding to move our program now to middle school. 
And essentially what our program is, we have a number of lessons or modules developed in great detail, 20 or 30 pages each, around particular topics in social psychology. Like one is, how do you transform a passive bystander in a heroic actor? Another one is, how do you transform people who have a fixed mindset? That is a whole list of things. We're good at this and we're bad at that. And we think of other people in the same way, that these people, these kind of people, are not good at this or, or, or bad at that uh, or good at something else. Uh, and it turns out that what's critical is to change your mindset to a growth mindset where everything is improvable, modifiable, with practice, with trying, with, with learning how to use uh, feedback. So we've developed these lessons. And what's exciting is they're all based around provocative videos. So even there are six different lessons. In addition to those, there's group dynamics and prejudice and discrimination. And each of these are the same eight activities. You see a video and, and the teacher asks you, discuss with your, with your partner, discuss in a small group. Why do the people not help? And then it's what would you do in that situation? What's the difference between looking in on a situation and being in the situation? That's where social norms come up. Think of a time when somebody needed your help and you helped. And all the time, the students, students are both writing down uh, uh, and also sharing with each other. There's no class, teachers don't lecture anymore. There's no class open discussion where shy kids never, never are ed, never in, involved. And then it, it goes through in this way. It's a whole new way. I mean, it's, we call it understanding human nature, yours and everybody else's. Uh, our program is now in Corleone, Sicily, in um, Flint, Michigan, in Budapest, uh, and in a number of uh, cities throughout Poland, and also in the community colleges in, Cal in California. Uh, and with funding, we've done all this. It's very little funding, mostly my own. Um, we hope to, as I said, expand uh, additional modules uh, and also to move our program down to, to middle school. And then, and then have another another set of programs focused really on parents, uh, on how parents can can work to create heroes. But I just want to back up and say that if it bleeds, it leads. That's the media mantra. So that the media emphasizes the negativity always. And what's worse in society that gets our attention? Because uh, I've done research to show it's. People attend to fear-provoking messages, uh, and so the good stories are, you know, in, in the back in the back of the newspaper, in the, in the at the end, in the last segment in the evening news. But in fact, every day in every country in every city, somebody is doing a good deed, but we never know about it. We, the, you know, we only find out if somebody happens to take a video of it uh, and sends it to. Uh, it, it appears on the internet. So essentially, another aspect of our heroic imagination project is promoting everyday heroism. We like to create a heropedia where, we, where people send us instances of people they've seen or they know who've done heroic deeds. So give me an example in your mind, because, you know, I think the word hero is often overused in our society, but, but, your, but, but your framing of it, heroic imagination, reminds me the very last podcast I did on these Wavemaker conversations was with a leader in neuroplasticity and brain plasticity. And one of their scientific mantras is neurons that fire together, wire together. And it sounds like you have a definition of a hero and you are trying to, at a very, starting at a young age, trying to get those her basically heroic neurons firing together. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, the neuroplasticity 
is, is also part of that, that mindset is that, you know, that everything is modifiable throughout your life. You know, there's been a lot of misconceptions that, you know, the brain, the brain stops uh, expanding and personality stops developing, you know, after adolescence. We now know that's all nonsense. Uh, you know, if you practice, if you work, if you, if you uh, engage in educational learning, your brain keeps developing and, and those neurons keep firing. So, so yeah, so the idea is, Definition of a hero is really simple. It's heroes are ordinary people who, who in a particular situation, take an extraordinary action to help somebody in need in an emergency or to defend a moral cause. Now, what difference from altruism is they do that aware of personal risks and negative consequences. That is, you, in extreme, you could lose your life. You could get hurt. Uh, if you're a whistleblower as one kind of hero, you often don't get promoted. You sometimes get fired. Um, uh, so there's almost there's a potential negative consequence, and heroes take the action despite it. Um, and so altruism is heroism light. It's... Uh, you give money to to uh, an organization or a church, or uh, you work for a day in the soup kitchen. Uh, you give blood to the Red Cross. There's no there's no real negative consequence uh, to you. But but so our definition of heroes is like in a sense, the enemy of heroism is egocentrism. That heroes are sociocentric, meaning what we teach is in every situation you go into, your task. Find someone that you can make feel special. Give a compliment. Make eye contact. Learn their name. Uh, ask something about them. Uh, in, engage them, especially people who seem uh, shy, uh, lonely, uh, seem distressed, upset. Uh, so your job is make someone feel special. So that means you have to have a sociocentric orientation. You go into a party. It's not thinking, who's going to like me? Am I going to look cool? It's who can I make feel better at the end of this party. Uh, so that's, that's the sociocentric orientation. Uh, and essentially it's, you know, it's little deeds of daily kindness in and of themselves. They're not heroic, but it becomes, we talk about the social habits of heroism. If, if you do these little deeds of, of kindness every day, then we think when, um, when the big opportunity arises, you are primed that you already have in your imagination, I'm the person who will do something. But it's also the hero is the one in a situation where the many do nothing. So that's the bystander effect. And, and the classic example was in New York City, oh, I guess it was two or three years ago, on, on a New York subway, uh, there are 75 people on the platform, and the guy falls across the tracks. Everybody looks around, they look away. There's an, they're not going to get involved. There's a 50-year-old African-American guy, Wesley Autry. He's standing there, sees it. He's got his two daughters there. He turns to a stranger, says, take care of my kids. Immediately jumps down on the track, gets the guy from across the tracks where the train, the subway, he knows the subway's going to come in every three minutes. We'll cut him in half, cut him in thirds. Uh, he puts them between the tracks, lays on top, presses them down, and the train goes over his head and his half an inch between the top of his Wesley's head and the bottom of the train. And he said, he saved the guy's life, really dramatic. Um, so that's a superhero. That's, that's taking enormous risk. Um, but what he said at the end is, I did what everyone ought to do. Uh, now, that's an extreme, but there are so many other cases of um, 
kids helping others in need. Uh, we had a young man, for example, in our in our program in Oakland in uh, Arise High School, uh, you know, minority school in gang territory, Philip Philip Johnson. And we had just finished the bystander lesson in an after-school program. And he's on a bus, and some kid is wheezing, and he can't breathe. Other kids are saying, throw him off the bus. He's irritating us. What does Johnson do? He immediately goes to the bus. The kid says, uh, what's wrong? He said, I lost my inhale. I can't breathe. Goes to the bus driver said, could you please stop at the, at the first pharmacy? Gets off of the kid, gets an inhale, it takes him home, saves his life. He was interviewed later, and they said, why did you do that? He said, I was enacting the bystander effect that I had just learned at HIP. And HIP is the Heroic Imagination Project. So, so, so that's, that's one, one way in which education makes you, could make you a social change agent. So, given your, given your, let me just yeah. ask you, given your life experience, do you feel that, and there's no way to quantify it, I know, but is your sense that the number of people out there who engage in these daily small acts of heroism outnumber the people who cut corners and cheat and lie? I do. I do. I'm an optimist. Again, you know, my journey from evil to heroism started in the South Bronx when I was a little kid in the, in the ghetto, uh, in the inner city, uh, in poverty. Um, and in any of those inner cities around the world, you are surrounded by people, men, whose job it is to corrupt kids, get them to steal, get them to take drugs, sell drugs, get girls to sell their bodies. And I had friends who went that way. And me and other kids, me and other friends didn't. I knew they were good kids, so I always was concerned and wondered, as an intuitive seven-year-old psychologist, you know, what was the difference between this group that, that you know, crossed the, crossed the line between good and evil and went the evil route and kids who stayed on the positive side? Uh, and it wasn't until I got to be a psychologist I said, okay, let me understand evil by doing research from the inside out. So my, my 1971 Stanford prison experiment was designed to do just that. What happens when you put really good people in a really bad place, a, a simulated prison, randomly assign them to play role of prisons and guards, and simply observe you know, what happens? And what we saw was, was astounding is within a day, Boys playing the role of guards became guards. They put on the uniform. They put on the, 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 um, uh, the, took the symbols of power, billy club, whistle, handcuffs. Um, uh, and boys put on the smocks with their numbers, and they became prisoners. And in a very short time, in 36 hours, the first prisoner had an emotional breakdown. Somebody we selected because he was normal, healthy, and and then each day thereafter, that was repeated with another prison breaking down, another prison breaking down. The study was supposed to go two weeks, and we had to end it in six days because it was out of control. Um, now, the interesting, so the message of that study is, you know, what kind of guard would you have been? What kind of prisoner would you have been? Now, there were some guards who were good guards who never did anything bad to the prisoners, but they never once intervene. They never once told the bad guards, hey, why don't you back off? You know, uh, let's go play cards. Uh, they're not giving us extra money for, for you know, waking the prisoners up uh, three or four times that night. So the good guards were good by default. Uh, and the prisoners who didn't break down never gave support to, to their buddies who were in the process of, you know, emotional disintegration. So in a sense, everybody in that study 
ended up doing bad things, including me, because I was the prison superintendent and I let it go on, you know, much too long. I describe it in great detail in my book, The Looser Effect. Uh, and I'm excited to share with uh, your audience that at Sundance two weeks ago, uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment Hollywood movie premiered. Uh, to great reviews. It won several awards for screenwriting and best science into film, the Sloan Foundation. And we're waiting to get a distributor, and hopefully it will be uh, released around the country and around the world. See, but let me see, say, like, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, this, this show, Wavemaker Conversations, were very interdirected, so we didn't need that outside affirmation. Nevertheless, I'm thrilled. <laughs> it's really weird. So Billy Crudup plays me. He's a really good actor. And the, the young actors, so it's like 22 you know, young actors, prisoners and guards, and, and the uh, actors playing my, uh, my research assistants are, are brilliant. Some of them are already on, on the trajectory to be outstanding young actors. And let me just say, when somebody looks up your name, uh, the first thing they come across is this infamous Stanford prison experiment, and it's fascinating. Yeah, infamous, infamous. It should be only famous, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, famous with, with infamous uh, uh, results, I guess. But, but, but this is interesting because you use the phrase that is still sticking in my mind. You, you talked about my journey from evil to heroism, and... It wasn't preordained necessarily, or maybe it was based on how you were as a seven-year-old wondering about these questions. Maybe, maybe it was preordained that you would not get stuck in the evil that you discovered at that Stanford prison experiment, that you would take this journey to, to an end point of heroism. Well, what do you think? Yeah, well, you know, the, the simple answer I came up with as a kid was it had a lot to do with what kind of mother you had. He had to have a mother. It, a lot of the kids, even then, didn't have fathers around. But he had to have a mother who was strong, who gave you direction and said, do this, don't do that, uh, who, who made sure you were doing your homework. Uh, and so that, that was the key. The second thing was uh, you had to like school because school promoted a future orientation, and that's critical for uh Becoming conscientious is critical for getting work done uh, because the enemy of, of any young person is, is present hedonism. It's living a life for sensation, for novelty, for, for immediate pleasure. You know, it's the past to, to drug addiction, to, gam to all addictions. And again, uh, it's, it's entwined with growing up poor. It's entwined with growing up um, uh, in the ghetto. And, see, and to be future-oriented... You, ha you begin to learn to think differently. You have to think in probabilities. If, you, if you're present-oriented, everything is or is not. It's a, it's, it's a dichotomous world. You know, if I ask you, do you want to do this? You say yes or no. You don't say maybe. Uh, in the future, there's no yes or no. It could, it's always could be. So, so becoming future-oriented, which is a whole other domain that, that I have been studying. Actually, I, I started the basic research on the psychology of time perspective, is fundamental to the success of individuals and actually of nations. You, you've been researching for well over four decades. You say you're an optimist, which... Uh, communicating to someone like my son, who's a teenager, is you're basically telling people of that age, you know, pe the people around you have the ability to be good and to do the right thing. Everybody needs training to sort of build that orientation, that her heroic imagination, as you call it. So what in your research, of all the research you've done, have you discovered more than anything 
makes you an optimist about the human condition. In, in all of the evil situations in the, in the Milgram study, uh, and parenthetically, Stanley Milgram, Milgram did the famous study of, of, of blind obedience authority where he gets, uh, he didn't use college students, uh, uh, men ages 20 to 50 from New Haven, Connecticut and Bridgeport, uh, to think that they are helping somebody uh, be a learner, they're a teacher in a role play situation, helping them by shocking errors. And and it, it's it's rigged so that the, the the learner keeps making errors, and finally they get the learner. They get, they start at only 15 volts, and they progress by 15 volt increments. And now, when it gets to two or three hundred volts, the guy is screaming, "I have a heart condition! I want to go on!" And and then the, the experimenter keeps prodding, "You must go on. You have a contract. These are the rules." And the question is, would anybody go to the final solution, which is 450 volts? And when Milgram asked 40 psychiatrists in New Haven, described it, you know, what percentage would American citizens go to, to the end? They said 1%. The answer is 60, 65%, 2 of 3. That's astounding. So, so, But even in that study, it's 2 of 3. There's still one-third who resist. In virtually every all the research um, in, in all uh, situations I studied extensively, the Holocaust, there were always Christians in every nation who helped Jews. So for me, I focus on that to say, yeah, I mean, in uh, in Poland, uh, the, Nazi, the Nazis, for some reason, especially hated the Poles. And, and they were most brutal, as you know, they, they destroyed uh, Warsaw, the central city. And then they they built a ghetto, 10-foot wall, brick wall, and they uh, high, like, went, I think, maybe 100 square blocks, and put 400,000 Jews from all over Poland in that ghetto and on a starvation diet. The idea that kids and old people die, and then they would ship everybody to concentration camp. Uh, people in the Warsaw ghetto uh, revolted later on. But before they did, a Polish woman... A uh, young woman who was a social worker heard about this, persuaded the rabbi to persuade his followers to let her and her friends smuggle the kids out to, to safety. Uh, and she formed a network of 19 other women and one man. And this is this an aside again. Women are most effective in heroic networks because they're used to working in social networks. Men are more likely to be solo heroes. They saved in one year 2,500 kids. Uh, again, it was risking their life. They would have, they could, could have been killed if they were found, if they found either um, bringing the kids out or, or uh, housing them. And now it turns out 10,000 Jewish people owe their life to this woman, you know, because those kids have had kids. So here's a case of a very ordinary person seeing a situation saying, I have to do something. So that's the key. It's that the heroic imagination readies you to say somebody should do something. If nobody's doing it, it might as well be me. The key, and that we know very little about, is moral courage. The moral courage is really the mediator between feeling I should do something under the cognitive, something bad is happening, these people will die or somebody will get hurt, and behavior, the heroic action. Uh, and it's very little studied. In fact, again, an aside is here, heroism and heroes, heroic nature, et cetera, is one of the least studied phenomena of all. Almost no psychology textbook has the words in it, not even positive psychology, because it's not a human virtue. 
empathy is, compassion is. But my argument is empathy and compassion uh, don't amount to much if they don't lead you to help me. It makes you feel good that that you share my suffering. It doesn't make me feel good. I want you to help me stop the suffering, and you're going to do it by taking action. Your journey from evil to heroism, uh, Professor Phil Zimbardo, is an inspiring one. Well, this whole show has turned into a show really about developing future heroes and not necessarily the life-threatening actions, but the everyday heroic measures that we can all take. So thank you for enlightening us on that, uh, Professor Phil Zimbardo. Thank you so much. One final note, among those listening to this particular episode is my guest next week. Many of you know him from his first book, a classic on negotiation and conflict resolution entitled Getting to Yes. His name is William Urey. Getting to Yes is mandatory reading in many business and law school classes and among many leaders. William Urey went on to co-found the Harvard program on negotiation. He has mediated countless disputes, including civil wars and conflicts that threaten to tear apart families. We'll talk about his brand new book called Getting to Yes with Yourself and other worthy adversaries. But we'll begin next week's discussion where this episode left off. In a negotiation, does being honest and transparent serve your vital interests or can it work against you? If you like what you've been hearing, I hope you'll subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes. And you can always find this podcast on the new CBS Podcast Network, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.